Hello there, welcome to episode number 110 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for joining, I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. This episode is a very topical one given recent developments. In it we hear from Ono Ischi, he's assistant professor at Ankara's Bilkent University and the director of its Centre for Russian Studies and the author of Turkey and the Soviet Union during World War II, published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. It's a rather counterintuitive book, it argues that the breakdown in Turkey-Soviet relations in World War II and at the start of the Cold War was actually an anomaly, saying Turkey and Russia in fact cooperated widely over the course of the 20th century. This line of reasoning goes rather against the grain of more conventional accounts, which typically depict Ankara and Moscow as bitter opponents, with Turkey on the opposite side in the Western camp during the Cold War. I'm pleased to put this episode out at the moment because, of course, it's a very timely conversation to be having, given all that's going on across the border in Syria, and we address all that a bit later on in the interview. But first, let me remind you that if you haven't already, you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Membership on Patreon gets you various extras, including transcripts in both English and Turkish, of every interview published on the podcast via email as soon as the episode is published. I'll also send you transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's very extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Indeed, Onur Ishchi's book that we discuss in this very episode is among the books included in the deal. Finally, members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available for free online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. New episodes are published every two weeks, so membership costs no more than $6 per month. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members are only charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Onur Ischi. We come on to the main issue of Turkey-Soviet relations in the 20th century a bit later on, but I started by asking him to talk about the deeper origins of Russian-Ottoman relations and whether it's right to say that Ottoman foreign policy was defined for centuries by seeing the Russian Empire as a profound existential threat. As far as late imperial Russian and Ottoman relations are concerned, it is true that beginning with Catherine the Great's reign, particularly, the port's foreign policy was, I would say, mostly dictated by a fear of Russian encroachment. And obviously the Straits issues, so the Dardanelles and Black Sea Straits, they constitute a, an important aspect of Russian-Ottoman relations, but equally important for the Ottomans was the clash in Eastern Anatolia or Southern Caucasus. And yes, Ottoman policy was largely dictated by, by a fear of Russia, but at the same time, these were two empires that suffered from similar problems of exclusion from what we might call the West with the capital W. So for the Russian Empire as well, after the Crimean War, we know that they staked out a different autonomous path, more heavily investing in the Far East, 
for instance, rather than getting involved in, in affairs in, in the West. And for the Ottomans, real diplomatic intrigues of the late imperial period began during this time uh, in which Russia played a crucial role in. And so I'm aware that the Ottoman relations were mostly uh, driven by conflict, while at the same time they, they were in many ways similar political entities trying to reform and modernize themselves at different periods. But when you look at the 20th century, I guess it's a good place to start off the origins of, of modern-day Russian-Turkish relations. I think many people, and this includes a group of historians, but also DC-based or London-based pundits, who misses the, the real picture here, who misses the Western-oriented, Western-dictated international order that emerged in 1919 in Paris. And I think that this is a better place to start a new narrative of Russian-Turkish relations. So I, I agree with your labeling as historic rivals. I completely agree with that. And at the same time, I, I think that the beginning of cordial affairs after the First World War has to be taken seriously. And unfortunately, it's not. It's generally portrayed as this pragmatic, short-lived honeymoon between otherwise two chronically hostile states, which, which is what my research is arguing against. Let's dig a bit more into that era, really, because uh, I suppose during the Turkish War of Independence, this historic view of Russian-Ottoman relations changed 180 degrees, really, and the Soviet Union supported the forces of, uh, of Ataturk during the uh, that war and uh, throughout the 1920s. It was a key source of uh, financial support, I believe. And this was really, as you say, there were almost a reversal of historical trends, I suppose. Just talk exactly. about that era, how that was, uh, why that was the case. What were the shared interests that were seen by these two new regimes, I suppose? Well, out of the rubble of these two failed empires that crumbled in, in the Great War, emerged two new young and, uh, to a certain degree, juvenile states with their utopian dreams and, and all that. And the period that you specifically refer to as you know, the early 20s is exceptional because the exchange between the newly established Bolshevik regime in Moscow and the, the fighting forces of the sort of Kemalist forces in Ankara, I guess the rebel government, was truly extraordinary in two ways, actually. I, I guess the first reason why this is extraordinary is because they are united in a shared resentment against the order that emerged in 1919 in Paris in ways that seemed strange, bizarre, because here is two distinct ideologies governing two different political entities, right? Combining their forces to, to defeat Western incursions and Western, in fact, invasions at this point. And it's extraordinary because the Bolsheviks at that point when they were sending guns gold and to a certain extent grains to Turkey, they were fighting their own civil war. And they were not like, they didn't really have that luxury to provide assistance to another country, let alone a country or Kemalism that they had doubts about, right? So this is a point when in the early 20s, the Bolsheviks still, to a certain degree, believed in the world revolution. They still believed in some sort of, they were pioneering this, this moment where it will have a domino effect. And it's not, say, 1923, when they actually realized that they may actually be alone and that elsewhere these revolutions are, are failing. And this is a point when they're looking at Kemalists, when there are other alternatives in Turkey, like Mustafa Supi uh, and Verpasha, etc. But they still pick Mustafa Kemal, which is the most 
controversial, politically speaking, story even today. I think that people sort of overlook this enigmatic aspect of, of Soviet foreign policy as they mature throughout their own civil war. They're constantly debating which one is the pragmatic thing to do and which one is more ideologically appropriate. Ultimately, the decision is made in favor of Kemalism, and the early Republican period sees twists and turns in terms of Ankara's relations with Moscow, but until the very end, so until the very last moment when World War II breaks out, you can see from the discourse of Turkey's political leaders a, a strong appreciation of the assistance that the Soviets provided them. And to cut the long story short, I think as much as the early 20s is exceptional in Turkey's relations with Russia, uh, given its historic past rivalries, I think this you can see a pattern all throughout the 20s and 30s. Even after the Soviets realized that what um, Mustafa Kemal is trying to do is bourgeois, nationalist, and they can see that the common denominator is anti-imperialism, and they can see that these two states when they work together, uh, have the ability to fight this disparity with the West, with Western power. I mean, it takes a long time to, to defeat the mistrust of hundreds and hundreds of years of warfare. But this is still a better place to begin our narrative of Turkish-Russian relations, that is, the 20s and 30s, rather than hundreds and hundreds of years of warfare. The symbol, really, of this golden age, or a symbol of this golden age, is uh, is the independence monument in Taksim Square. Now it's rather dwarfed mm-hmm. by everything around it, but uh, <laughs> at the time it was put up at the height of um, this sort of Turkey-Soviet cooperation in the 1920s, and it actually features, alongside uh, Ataturk on there, the uh, Soviet ambassador, alongside all the other founders of the Turkish Republic, which is quite a um, an honoured place that he had there, and it just kind of symbolised the, the warmth of relations I suppose, at the time. No, absolutely. In 1928, so the Turkish state it did not really have enough local resources to allocate to for, for, for this monument, and they actually had to do some fundraising. But there, if you're looking for evidence elsewhere, I guess, but there are a bunch of other monuments that portrays the beginning of a new narrative. And I think that a good place to start off is the Anatolian factories that the Soviets invested in in the 30s the backbone of the Turkish industry that was the Kayseri and Nazili textile plants that were based on the Soviet model and the fact that Turkey became the first state to adopt a Soviet model of a five-year development program shows you the real motivations behind Turkey's early leaders, their obsession with development and to achieve this parity with the West. Uh, The nuance here is that even then, even at the height of the Soviet-Turkish friendship, I still have the feeling, reading archival documents, that the, the Turks might have preferred Western factories. But they never came in the terms that the Soviets offered them, which was called a net balance trade. In essence, the Turks paid back, Ankara government paid back for the construction of Turkey's first and major industrial plants with figs, raisins, cotton, and and things of that sort, not with the hard-priced currency. I I think this is a point when I have to say my book (laughs) narrates a story about that exceptional period, that a meaningful partnership against what both countries' leaders refer to as the forces of world imperialism. 
obviously the book is explicitly concerned with the uh, the period of the Second World War, and it was at this point where Soviet-Turkish cooperation came under immense strain, really. Mm-hmm. It came essentially to a spectacular end, actually. Turkey obviously remained neutral for almost the entire war, and it tried to follow this delicate balancing act, really, based on a, a kind of hard-nosed understanding of Turkish national interests, trying to play both sides off each other. But this strained relations with uh, the Soviets very much. Just talk about how it did that exactly and what was the effect of Stalin because he was uh, the key person, obviously he was leading the Soviet Union, but uh, it was his, a lot of the policies that he took with regard to Turkey, in particular mm-hmm. the immediate yeah. aftermath of the war, mm-hmm. that um, shaped the relationship between the two countries. Now here's the question about access to archival documents. I did a lot of research in the Turkish archives, uh, and my, 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 my purpose was to unearth the voices of Turkey's own policymakers, to try to understand Turkey's position throughout the war. And, and while doing that, I had access to a number of archival records and collections. A set of, I would say, near miraculous circumstances enabled me to gain access to, to the Turkish Turkish diplomatic archives. My primary purpose was to juxtapose Turkey's own archival records with foreign records. But essentially, the book that I was looking at was Selim Deringil's Act of Neutrality that talks about Turkey during World War II uh, in general. And, and there, Deringil had access to British foreign uh, records. This was the late 1980s when the Turkish archives were not really accessible. Uh, and he was telling a story about Turkey from a third-party archival depository. But his general portrayal of Turkey as a proactive, and his book is called actually An Act of Neutrality, uh, his general portrayal of Turkey as a proactive state, uh, well, I had problems with that because when I looked at Turkey's own archives, I, I saw a fear dominating uh, Turkey's uh, policymakers, which was this historic Russophobia governing Turkey's foreign policy. And reading these records and juxtaposing them against Russian archival records, I saw, for instance, that unlike many historians who thought that Turkish-Soviet relations ended after the Montreux Convention, the Straits Convention of 1936, when Ankara and Moscow disagreed over the revision of uh, the Lausanne Straits regime, I actually saw that this wasn't the case. Actually, trade picks up. Both states invest heavily to save this relationship, and there is this momentum and a genuine intention from both ends for a more sustainable relationship. And then I saw that it ended, for instance, with the Molotov-Rippentrop Pact, when Molotov referred to Poland's fate in a menacing manner in his conversations with Turkish diplomats. The Turks were really shaken with the prospect of Moscow allying with another menacing state, Germany, the Third Reich. I tried to define why this was sort of the breaking point and how uh, perhaps the root, the origins of Turkish neutrality uh, throughout the war had to do with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and how Turkey tried to remain on the fence. Uh, there was a, a serious sense of trepidation in Ankara. So I argued against the suggestion that Turkey successfully exploited the leverage of the neutral to gain advantages between 39 and 45. And so on the contrary, I tried to show how Turkish foreign policymakers, imperiled in every direction, were not really proactive, but simply sought to survive. 
You also talk in the book about uh, Nazi propaganda efforts in Turkey, and some of these were quite successful. It helped fuel this wave of anti-Soviet paranoia, really. And it also went hand in hand with um, other currents, you know, pan-Turkic ultra-nationalist currents that uh, had Mm. these dreams of liberating the Turks of Central Asia from under the uh, Soviet yoke. That was quite an interesting factor, I thought, in the book. Mm, absolutely. Um, the, I mean, pan-Turkists throughout World War II, like any other political faction in Turkey, had a sort of preference. So in a new administration, even today, is criticized by almost every political faction, even irreconcilable ones, right? It's easy to criticize in a new administration. But when you look at the situation in Turkey, pan-Turkists are favoring Turkey's entrance into war uh, on the side of the axis. And at the very least, they're playing the silent ally role in Turkey's political intrigues, while at the same time, the liberals are pushing for Turkey's entrance into war on the, on the side of the allies. So, so essentially, the idea of proactive neutrality was inconceivable to me after reading these sources, primarily because Turkey, the internet administration, not only had to struggle with foreign pressure at different times from different parties, uh, but also had to deal with its own political and domestic political considerations. And and the pan-Turkists, they try really hard lobbying in Berlin, mobilizing the Crimean Tatars, and really pushing forward for for Turkey's uh, alliance with Nazi Germany. But here's what's, I think, more striking. When you read the German records, you can see that they're not as enthusiastic. What Germany really desired is to see asylum dialogue. And it didn't really correspond with the desires or dreams of Pan-Turkis or the Crimean Tatars. So when you look at the Crimean Tatar memoirs or newspapers that they published or Pan-Turkists in Turkey, the impression that they walked out of the meetings in Berlin does not really correspond to the impression that the Germans had, the Nazis had. So, so there is that discrepancy. They, they, you can see that they want the, the Nazis want a country like, like Spain uh, in many ways, a silent, benevolent, neutral country towards the Nazi cause, which would ultimately take part in the new world, the new world order that the Nazis uh, will establish after the war. Now, in a new administration was very reserved. This is a very controversial argument that I'm making because many of the opponents of Inunu bring forth this argument that he was, in fact, closer to the axis at one point, or at least played uh, the friendly neutral role. But I show in this book in detail how that was not really the case. And this is not to exonerate Ispetinunu from, from, from anything, such as, for instance, the wealth tax that was levied on the minorities in, in Turkey. But my concern in this book was not the wealth tax, which was a, a very traumatic episode that perhaps I will you know, work on in a different book. But here, my, my concern was what really governed Turkey's uh, foreign policy. A, it was a fear of Russia. B, it was the feeling that Turkey's leaders considered World War II as, an, as a completely European imperialist warfare that they should stay away from. And, and more importantly, there was a certain degree of fear about the Nazis as well, despite the Chrome trade. That is the most controversial aspect of Inunu's wartime policy with vis-a-vis Germany, the impressive amount of Chrome trade that fed the Nazi juggernaut. But the thing is, there is a phased thinking in Turkey's leadership that somehow they feel like there's a need for Germany, that there's a need for strong Germany at the heart of Europe to basically check Soviet encroachments that they feared. At the same time, however, this is a phased thinking. Ultimately, when you look at the leaders of the country, 
Belgium, which is Inunu and its very close circle, they ultimately hope for England's triumph. That is very clear when you read the Turkish records. They want ultimately the Soviet Union defeated by Germany and then and then Germany defeated by Great Britain, but not completely. Uh, so they're fully cognizant that this is a total war that will end with the unconditional surrender of one or the other party. But at the same time, there is that wishful thinking in Ankar's leadership that wished for some sort of a status go on to Bell. And that's because the, the country they inherited is extremely poor, truncated, limited resources, and probably they were realists. And, and they, they thought that probably their country would not be able to survive another uh, world disaster. And that's what I think distinguishes my argument from previously made ones. But at the same time, of course, also when we're talking about anti-Soviet paranoia, it wasn't just basis paranoia in many ways, you know, Stalin's own blunders aggravated Turkey's Russophobia in many ways, particularly towards the end of the war, the Soviets took on this increasingly menacing attitude, really. I think Stalin demanded uh, Soviet bases on the Turkish Straits and uh, even had uh, even sought to seize parts of uh, eastern Anatolia, uh, some of those eastern provinces on the border. Just talk about that immediate post-war situation and how Stalin in particular, his stance helped push Turkey towards the West, essentially, under the wing of the US during the Cold War. Well, this is uh, what you just asked. It's, it's probably one of the most controversial episodes in Turkish diplomatic history, because this is when Turkey stakes out, stakes out a pro-Western path and really stops balancing. And for a while, I would say until late 1950s, Turkey is more unquestionably pro-Western than at any point in its modern history. And Stalin's demands constitutes a, a major incentive for this. Uh, now, the Soviets really played a menacing role, not just in the post-war environment, but after Stalingrad. Uh, but the Soviets were waiting for the right moment to actually push with their own geopolitical uh, interests, because they actually, at this point, do not trust Turkey uh, for various reasons. Some of them are justified, some of them are not. Uh, but neutrality in a critical conjuncture like this, when the rest of the world is giving a life and death struggle, neutrality carries with it a lot of moral allegations, obviously, levied from both Great Britain and the Soviet Union in the immediate aftermath, in the final days of the war and the immediate aftermath of the war. Uh, and Stalin successfully used this moment to, to probe the Soviet periphery in its most delicate spot, which is the southern frontier. Now, were the Turks surprised to see demands about revision of the Straits? I think not. Were the Turks surprised that there were demands about eastern Anatolian cities? I doubt it, because there is a residual mistrust between Ankara and Moscow. So I think that the Turks are not surprised, but they are. Is there fear? Yes. Is there a real Soviet threat? Yes. And it wasn't until the end of 1945 that Turkey sort of convinces Great Britain and the United States that they had been right all along, that the Soviet Union might actually try to push, to, to, to probe European periphery on its margins. And it is only in early 1946 that the United States, the, the Anglo-American camp begins to see Turkey's uh, grievances. It was only at the foreign ministerial meeting in Moscow in late in December 1945 uh, between the United States, uh, 
Soviet Union and, and Great Britain, that the British and American ambassadors are in a private conversation are saying maybe the Turks are right. Uh, maybe we should do something about it. And then begins a different phase when Turkey actually capitalizes on, on the Soviet threat to the extent that after Stalin's death, when Khrushchev says, okay, we, we don't actually have those demands anymore, and we have actually documents in the Turkish archives of, of this correspondence saying uh, this was wrong, uh, in other words, proving that there were demands, but also Molotov saying the cardinal sin was to push our limits in Turkey, uh, which we lost to the Western camp. So in this post-Second World War era, uh, Turkey entered the uh, the Western camp and sent troops to Korea and whatnot and basically became a fully signed up member of um, of the Western alliance, essentially. This, this post-war, uh, Cold War era has come to actually define a lot of what we think about Turkey in the 20th century and uh, where its orientation lies. But uh, you actually describe it in the book this era as being a kind of anomaly, actually, or an interregnum of some kind, sort of going against the grain of history essentially or at least the history of this century i'll quote from the book you say the remaking of post-war turkey as a solidly pro-western ally was unsustainable in the long run turkey's unduly pro-western and anti-soviet direction in the 1950s marked a radical departure from the grand strategy that had guided the republic successfully during the interwar years Mm-hmm. Just tease this out a bit, this idea that post-Second World War era is really a quite historically discreet period in the 20th century and actually goes against the grain, essentially, of Turkey-Russian cooperation, I suppose, mm-hmm. in the years surrounding it. I mean, in this book, I researched a traumatic episode in Russian-Turkish relations in, in, in several different archives, mainly in Turkish archives, illustrating why problems in Soviet-Turkish relations were the product of a very, very particular conjuncture. And it, it took extraordinary circumstances to end this meaningful partnership that lasted from 1920s until 1939. Uh, as, as I researched over the past five years, I, I began to see 1960s and 70s at the similarities between those two decades with the interwar period. There is this genuine understanding that Turkey's geopolitical, Turkey's geopolitics dictates a balancing act rather than a, a sort of a mono, monodirectional pro-Western stance. A good example of this is the factories again that the Soviet Union invested in this in this NATO ally country in the 60s and 70s when Turkey was really acting more like a non-aligned country than than a NATO member. So what's really interesting to me when I read in newspapers uh, these days uh, is to treatment of Turkey, this NATO ally, uh, and its relations with Moscow as this sudden and fundamental departure from the norm. Uh, it is not only surprising, but if you don't mind me saying, it's absurd. Uh, when you look at 1960s and 70s, many of Turkey's heavy industry was built by Soviet money. Uh, this is a NATO ally receiving Soviet technological invest- investments in the country. You have aluminum uh, factories, petroleum refineries, steelworks. These factories and the drive for development and the desire to, to achieve this parity with the West, uh, I think, is the norm and not the strained relations during World War II. Um, even though many accounts 
uh, we begin their accounts of Russian-Turkish relations as chronically hostile uh, countries. These two countries have never fought since the Great War. And they did not fight, just more recently speaking, uh, as uh, the plane crisis happened or when Ambassador Karloff was assassinated, when many uh, pundits were in standing scenarios of, uh, of warfare. Uh, similar things you can read today about Turkey's problems with Russia in Idlib. And, and this is this is very hard to explain because as you're studying anti-Westernism, and as I'm studying anti-Westernism in Turkey, you, you sometimes, I sometimes face criticism from my friends or my colleagues or journalists or, or scholars as if I'm trying to exonerate anything. I'm just studying anti-Westernism. I'm not an anti-Western person in general. But I begin to see the broader grand strategy, uh, so the grand strategy that governs Turkish, Turkish foreign policy since the end of the empire, the Ottoman Empire, as a, as a balancing act between Russia and the West. And, and the West. And, and ultimately, when you look at the 60s and 70s, you see that Turkey Turkey is trying to mend fences with the Soviet Union. There is not a return to, to the kind of trust of the 20s and 30s, but there is a strong understanding that crises need to be, need to be managed in return for cooperation, regional and otherwise. Uh, how do you explain Soviet Russia's investment in a NATO ally country? Soviet Russia, Soviet Russia's reach out to the global south or the third world in the 60s and 70s in India, in Indonesia, that fills a pattern, puts Turkey uh, in a pattern, perhaps. But Turkey is not an unaligned country. It's a NATO ally. It's acting like an unaligned country. And, and all these steel plants, etc., were built for Turkish development. And they were not really lucrative investments. The Soviet Union received, as it did in the past, in the 20s and 30s, figs, raisins, oranges, tomatoes, and chicken uh, for those factories. And so when you look at the pattern that perhaps you even see today in a completely different uh, international order and two completely different authoritarian regimes governing these two countries, you can still see that pattern. And I think that that's, um, that's why I ended the book with uh, this caveat that, you know, I explain in this book how relations turn sour, but ultimately this is not the norm. And it grows against the grain because when Turkey joined, became a NATO member in 1952, emerged a historical historic literature as well, a new literature that said that the 20s and 30s, the interwar friendship between Turkey and the Soviet Union was pragmatic and short-lived, and it was meant to die. And the norm is a historic rivalry between these two states. I'm saying, no, it's not. That World War II explains the narrative of how things exacerbated uh, between these two states. But it's not the norm, it's an anomaly. And bringing things up to the, the current day, I mean, um, this episode will be published in a couple of weeks, so things are liable to shift because they change very fast in Syria. But uh, focus at the moment is on Idlib and the current tendency is for people to say that the situation in Idlib is putting under strain fledgling Turkish-Russian right. partnership. Basically, it's a kind of microcosm of the Syrian civil war, I suppose. Of Turkey backing the rebels, Russia backing the Syrian army. How do you see Idlib? potentially changing things do you think it's a really significant challenge that the partnership faces or do you think it's just a kind of temporary thing that the two countries will overcome and ultimately the strategic view of both governments will uh, emerge from this i work for an international relations department but i'm an historian that i really don't like speculation but what i could share with you is what i think will not happen I don't think Turkey and Russia will go to war, uh, not even a, a proxy war. I think that this is 
uh, Turkey's massing of troops and the casualties, uh, the news of casualties that we received in the past couple of days are bad omen for, for Russian-Turkish relations, I admit that. But looking at the pattern and looking at actually very recent crises, such as the shooting down of the, the Russian fighter jet and the assassination of Ambassador Karloff, I have a strong feeling, and I hope I'm not wrong, but I have a strong feeling that these two governments will try to manage this crisis. That's the first thing I will, I will say. I feel that it's more likely that they will manage this crisis. But more importantly, Turkey and the Soviet Union Union, as well as its successor state, the Russian Federation, never really agreed on anything geopolitically. They almost always quarreled or disagreed over geopolitical issues. Uh, but then why did not why why haven't they fought for 100 years since the, the Great War, uh, since the Russian revolutions, really? When you look at the peak of Soviet-Turkish friendship in the 20s and 30s, these two states disagree over the straits almost as strongly as their imperial predecessors, but they try to manage it, their differences. The one time that they're really outright hostility becomes an issue over things like uh, the Straits, Eastern Anatolia. But, but Syria was also part of part of the post-World War II uh, problems between Turkey and uh, the Soviet Union, by the way, particularly in relation to the Armenian community there when the Soviet Union invited them. But even then, they did not fight. And when you look at other more normalized periods, you see that they don't agree on geopolitical issues, but they manage crisis in return for cooperation. And I think that I'm much more convinced now that the West is an intrinsic determinant in this equation in the sense that both states are driven still by this desire to, to challenge this disparity uh, together. And I think that looking at the developments in Idlib and in Syria, even as early as 2014, when Crimea was more uh, on top of the, the headlines and the foreign policy agendas of both states, when Putin uh, visited Turkey in December 2014, they really didn't really speak about Crimea. They spoke more mostly about disagreements in Syria. We've been talking about this for, for, for over five years, five and a half years. Okay, so there are strong disagreements, but I think that ultimately the intention to sign the Sochi agreements and the Sochi, the Sochi negotiations and a joint patrolling of this area with Soviet and, uh, with Russian and Turkish troops shows you the intention of both states who are both cognizant of the fact that they don't actually agree on things. So my short response to your question is that I'm, I think, convinced that they will uh, manage this one as well. That was Ono Ischi. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 110. Remember, his book is included in a discount offered to Turkey Book Talk members by IB Tourism Bloomsbury. If you fancy delving a bit further, you can also do a bit more delving by checking out our archive for related episodes. Back in August 2019, for example, we published an episode with Emre Ershen of Marmara University on Turkey-Russia relations and Turkey's pivot to Eurasia, which is certainly worth a look if you missed it at the time. Also, do remember to check out Turkey Turkey Book Talk's very excellent partner, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that concisely packages together all the major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Dropping into your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles that have been published over the week, as well as some excellent puns. Search for Turkey Recap on Twitter to subscribe, or follow the link that I will put in our show notes, including at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com 
If you're a fan of Turkey Book Talk, consider becoming a member on Patreon to support us. Membership gets you that IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me. For all that, all you have to do is pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page, and I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so please send in recommendations feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com but until our next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks thank you very much for listening Bitches!